Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstraveled.net. And now here's your host, Mandela. We are sitting underneath a pile of boulders in the Sonoran Desert in a very small passageway that I'm grateful is not acting like a wind tunnel today because the wind is blowing through the cactus. I'm sitting here with Dan Baird. Dan is the head instructor for the California Survival School. He considers himself a guide and a traditional outdoor skills instructor. Dan, thank you so much for sitting with me in the rocks today. No worries. This is some of my favorite country out this stretch. Just the people look at deserts sometimes and they think it's all the same, you know, or it's, it's you know everything's dead out here. But in reality, deserts are bread baskets. They're full of life, and they're some of the easiest places to live. And that's why people would traditionally hunker down in stretches like this and stay all year. Dan, my first question for you is: Where did you grow up, and how was adventure a part of your childhood? So I grew up in Southern California, and I'd have to blame my grandfather for being the first to really get us outdoors. Uh, at age eight, he dragged me up the John Muir Trail, which is a big stretch of the Pacific Coast Trail uh, that heads up towards towards Whitney and that stretch of mountains in that area. And so I was eight and had a backpack on larger than me, and I'm going up these switchbacks. You know, he chose this, this stretch of trail. It's just switchback after switchback, and I'm up about switchback five, and I just sit down and start crying, you know, and... And Grandpa, just uh, you know, he was, he was amazing. Just uh, loved the outdoors. Loved uh, just, you know, he was there. He wasn't he wasn't there for himself. He was there for for me and for the experience. And he just sat down with me. He bribed me with some some Skittles, a candy, and and just uh, you know, it's like one more switchback, one more switchback. And we got up to the top, and that was my first backpacking trip at eight. And it just kind of went from there. And that trip, I got hypothermia from hanging out in the snow too long. Uh, it's still still early spring. Uh, I remember this lake that had golden trout right at the base where the next lake above was feeding in and hundreds of golden trout just sitting in a pile and all you had to do is drop your rod in and they would just uh, bite and come out and it was you know just really like you know experiences just stay with you as well as things that really caught on to me and latched on to me that hey nature's a thing I want this a part of my life Um, so I would say I would blame grandpa for for uh, getting me into the outdoors and then beyond that my family had they were pretty into scouting i had to get my boy scout eagle scout rank to drive so you know 14 i got that knocked that out of the way i guess i've had a fairly well connected family as far as you know being open to outdoor experiences although i never thought it was something i would do for a living dan you are the head instructor for the california survival school I'd like to learn a little bit more about some of the early survival skills that you cultivated as a kid and like just kind of how did you get interested in that? You know, there's there's always this idea of an adventure. You read stories, or you know, you, my my parents also read those a lot. And so you'd read The Crusoe, you know, you'd read Jungle Book, even just little things like that. Just these outdoor adventure sort of stories, uh, Hardy Boys, anything where it's like they're out doing something, exploring. And, you know, I I've always had that sense of adventure, and and I was lucky to grow up in a stretch of Southern California back when it was pretty unincorporated. My rules were, you know, be home by dinner, don't hurt anybody, don't get in trouble with the police, you know, just just uh, make sure you get home. 
home. And so, you know, we'd wander off a good 15 miles from home up in the mountains on our bikes or just climbing up through the cliffs and playing with rattlesnakes and, and that sort of thing. And it was formative for me in a sense of just getting comfortable with the outdoors and understanding what it is, but also just understanding how to have self-control of my own limits, um, understanding what my limits are and, and be able to self-determine my own risk. I think as a survival instructor, most people just think of all the dangerous things you're doing. My real job as a survival instructor is risk mitigation. So my job is to go take really crazy things from all around the world. I get a guide all over the place and I get to actually go there and make them safe for people enough to attend and come home alive. That's my real job. I'm, I mitigate risk. And I think of that with an early sense of being allowed as a kid to be able to go out and explore and kind of draw my own boundaries. I mean, I had friends fall down cliffs and like and live, uh, actually. And weird stuff like that where we really early is I had to decide, you know, where's my boundaries, uh, you know, and, and that actually was really helpful uh, going into high school and things. I was I didn't ever I never felt peer pressured into doing things by other people. I always knew, OK, that's my line. I'm good. I think actually now it's one of the things that's really challenging for kids being outdoors uh, or just being growing up in general is not having a chance to have a sense of how do I develop my own boundaries if I'm always being watched and people are always around and kind of helicoptering. There's I'm going in a lot of different directions with this, but I, I would say that for me that, that sense of being allowed to be outdoors and develop my own sense of what risk is and my own boundaries is probably the most important survival skill I've ever learned if I had to, to name one. And the rest of them, you know, came different ways. Everything, you know, if you think of starting fires and all these different things that you got to do to become a guide or whatever, those are all awesome skills. And frankly, there's something you have to keep doing all the time or you lose them. But those fundamental things of just being aware and learning how to create boundaries and learning how to process your environment, I think those are key skills to understand if you want to teach skills outdoors and be a guide you need to understand risk you need to understand how to really sense and read an environment and also just understand people as a guide in the, the day if you don't have a relationship with people you're not a guide like you're just going to be fighting all the time and cr- frankly you're probably going to be creating more dangerous situations than than really helping people being a guide is is having a relationship that is the voice of dan baird he's the head instructor for california survival school Dan, I'd like to ask you now about an experience that you had in your early years where you learned a lesson from that experience, and you can share that with a listener. Two weeks into guiding, I started guiding in the Tonto National Forest in Arizona for an outdoor program called Anasazi. I was a backcountry guide for that program. Really primitive program. So if we had water, it's because we found it. This is this is high country desert. And if we you have fire, it's from rubbing sticks together to make them using traditional fire methods. It's really out there. You're traveling 30 to 50 miles cross country. You know, it's roughly 80 kilometers cross country every every week in some stretches just with the clothes in your back and it's very little equi- equipment, very little kit. And when you're doing that, you know, there's a lot of chances to uh, learn how to avoid survival situations and sometimes to confront them head on. And one of my early guiding experiences that was really formative for me was uh, we were we were out there and this was a, a teen group. There were three young boys uh, in the program and another guide. And we were having to get through roughly, you know, another... 20-mile stretch of country to get to where we needed to get out for that week. Uh, this week, you, you kind of went from point A to point B and, and onward to point C. You know, a lot of people were out there for up to six weeks in this program. We came to a set of horseshoe canyons on the top of maps where you'd have to climb up these and go over if we wanted to get there faster or we'd have to go around a couple of days. And so uh, this is the first time I ever felt like I was going to die as a guide. 
the other guide and the boys decide to, to scale. This, this is free climbing, no no ropes or anything. They scaled a roughly 80-foot section of cliff with improvised packs tied around full of, you know, stuff that they had with them, rocks and sticks they collected in a sleeping bag. And so they climbed up. They had scaled this thing, and I, I went down the canyon a bit more to, to get some uh, some fire materials, friction fire kits. I saw some good stuff I wanted. So I went down the canyon more to get that. And instead of going back and climbing the same route, I decided to free scale another section of the wall. And so I started scaling this wall at roughly, you know, close to 100 feet of cliff. Uh, some of it was kind of hard scrabble to start, just places you can kind of move up fairly easy. And then it got to really just straight sandstone uh, cliff. And I am roughly five feet from the top, a few meters. And I'm looking up and there's nothing. There's nothing to grab. There's nothing to hold on to. I'm wedged into a little tiny triangle of space that I can kind of fit my chest into and push my hands against the side of this rock and stand on the ledge. But it's not enough ledge to rest on. If I let go with my hands, I'm falling. And I have this awkward bundle of stuff tied on my back that won't let me rest into this thing. And I'm braced on there and there's nothing above me for two meters in this little tiny wedge of space, this little triangle. My heart starts going really fast, and I'm looking down. You know, don't look down. You look down. You know, I'm like, what do I do? And at this point, it was like, I can't untie this pack. I can't, you know, it's just, it's improvised rope tied around me. I can't go down. There's no handholds. It's sandstone. This stuff just breaks apart. You know, it's it's a one-way direction thing, and it's like I can either let go and just let myself go, you know, or I can try to figure something out and just, you do one or the other. You either fight or you leave it. And so I'm braced on that cliff, and I just said a quick prayer, and I just made the scrabble. There was a, a adrenaline braced myself into the, this wedge, and just uh, on this flat surface, braced myself up the next two meters with I don't know how, and rolled into a big bed of cactus on the top. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, I'm never doing that again. I'm out. <laughs> like I'm done. This is never happening again. And I was I wasn't close enough to get help. The other guys were, uh, you know, roughly uh, another quarter mile around another bend on the other side of the, the canyon. And so I was, it was just me and I got up and I pulled a cactus out of my stuff and I walked over and met up with them and, uh, we started walking and it was, it was, there were six more horseshoes that day that we had to scale. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those things I had to push through and keep doing it. And I was a lot more careful in choosing my route. But for me, that was just a moment where for me in that moment, it felt like there's nothing else I can do. I'm stuck and it's either I just give up or I just do what I can and uh, calm down. So, you know, when you're in those moments, a lot of times your heart's going real fast or you're just feeling panicked, whatever the situation in your life, you're feeling like, I'm stuck, I can't do anything. You know, it's a lot of times you just have to slow it down. I I slowed down my breathing. I just said a quick quick prayer or whatever it is you want to do, just recenter yourself and then just just go, you know, and and do, do what you can with what you can, break it down into small steps and move. And that's what I did, and I'm still here. And uh, I think for me that was a real formative experience. It just taught me take things, small steps. If you feel trapped, look look around for what you can what can help you, other people, whatever resources you have available to you. It could be a memory, and just push forward. You know, do what you can do, and, and worry about what you can affect, and don't worry about the rest. That's that's all you can really do, anyways. That's the voice of Dan Baird, and he's the head instructor for the California Survival School. He considers himself a guide and a traditional outdoor skills instructor. Now, Dan, you mentioned before you climbed up there, you were gathering some wood for making a fire. And I want to dive into more like risk mitigation and creating boundaries and, and overall some survival skills that the listener might be able to acquire and just by listening to you. But could you tell us a little bit about traditional fire making? Yeah. 
by my count, there's roughly 30 different methods of primitive friction fire making, ways to, to rub wood or wood-like material together to get it to break down, create a fuel, heat up, and then make a fire. You might have seen something on TV where people rub them sticks together and a fireball bursts out of the ground. That, that doesn't happen. It's not real. But friction fire is real. And all of us, no matter where you are in the world, where, you're, where your family's from, it's an ancestral skill for all of us because all of our ancestors are doing it. And I love traveling around the world, learning different methods from different cultures and different peoples. My first method is one of the most common methods that people do today. It's kind of a hybrid you know, modern method we call bow drill friction fire. The original form of that was found in Egypt about 4,000 years ago that we have record of. Could have been longer. Stuff falls apart. Wood doesn't last forever. But it's about 4,000 years ago that we have an example of people using this bow and drill setup that you can Google if you want to see how that kit looks. Most common was a form of hand drill, which was my next method. It's a basically a really long stick, and you rub it into another stick at a base, like a baseboard, to get fire. And there's a bunch of different things you can do to, do to dial this in, and different cultures have managed it different ways. But basically what's happening is you have to find woods that have three characteristics to make it work. You need the wood to be a soft wood. And that basically means if you can take a thumbnail and dig into it and create, create a nice streak in the wood and, and dent it, that means the fibers are soft enough to break down for fuel. It needs to be dry because dry stuff burns better and not sappy or resinous. The tree sap, the sticky tree blood, that gums stuff up and smooths it out and makes it so you don't have fuel or heat. If you can find stuff that's dry and it's soft enough, and it's not resinous, and those things, it holds the right characteristics, it's generally something that's good to test for friction firewood. People like to memorize all kinds of tree names and stuff or things that they think might make good wood for friction fire. You don't need to, and that's frankly not what most people would do if they're stuck somewhere. You don't know all the trees a lot of times if you're somewhere new. I would wander a creek bed, and I've done this all over the world. I wander some, some dry creek bed, and I'll look for materials that meet those characteristics until I find stuff that works, and then I'll test them out. The actual pattern of shaping them and cutting them to the right setup and then rubbing them together right, that's a whole process for each of them. It's better to watch some, some videos or learn in person. But for me, it not only is a viable method for making fire, but I think that someone it's a really valuable teacher for learning how a fire grows. If you're successful with a friction fire, you end up with a little burning pile of wood dust that you've created, like a coal, and it, it can glow orange like the end of a cigarette from that little baby ember you have to grow it up into a big fire so you have to learn how to feed a fire baby food small processed stuff into to bigger stuff and so a lot of times you'll take that coal and you'll put it into a finely processed nest of really really uh you know ground up fibers from from grass or inner bark a tree that's soft or other sorts of things i've, I've used elephant dung from africa when i was on the trail out there in, in the serengeti for a show for nat geo and all these fine plant fibers, you can create basically a bird's nest and put that coal in there and gently catch the rest of the nest and grow it. It's a viable method. It's really cool. But it also just, there's so much that goes into fire. Even if you have modern equipment, people get into trouble with matches and fire starters uh, because they'll go out somewhere, the conditions are bad, and they don't understand how to manage the materials. Friction fire is really good at teaching people how to manage the materials to really care for and grow a fire. And if you can get good doing it that way, you'll be much better off with your, your modern materials. And frankly, there are some people in survival shows and stuff that say, oh, I can do a friction fire. I don't need anything else. It's like I'm the ultimate bad A because I can do that. I think that's a really bad idea. 
if I fall into a lake and it's freezing and all the wood around me is wet, it's going to be really hard for me to just pull a fire out of the forest. Even if I can get materials together and do that, that's not where I want to be if I'm hypothermic with a broken arm. So while I love friction fire and it's definitely part of my journey and I use it because it's such a great tool on a lot of our trips, we always have emergency backups. So, you know, it's a, it's important as a guide to have redundancies. It's important to not just trust that something that works where you are is going to work everywhere else in all conditions. You know, as part of our safety mechanism for reducing risk, we have redundancies and we want to get stuff that's going to work best and the best because you need to have the mindset that if you're going to have an emergency where you are going to die and you need to survive, the best thing is to have stuff that's going to work for you in bad conditions. So one of my favorite fire starters that I carry, one of at least, usually when I'm heading back country, is a road flare. Those things are a 15-minute, 1,000-degree match. And if I have a broken arm and I'm hypothermic, I can get one of those out and I can stick it in a pile of wet brush. And I've, you know, you can light wet brush with that. It's a good way to get a base. And if you've spent the time and taken the time to learn how to manage firewall and manage materials and gather the right types of stuff and process it right, you're going to be ahead of the game. So, you know, learn every skill under the sun. Learn how to do everything every way you can. And then if you're out somewhere where your life's on the line, make sure that you have redundancies in place, backup systems that are going to be easy if you're sick or compromised or having other problems. Learn every skill and prepare for the worst. That's the voice of Dan Baird, and he is the head instructor for the California Survival School. He considers himself a guide and a traditional outdoor skills instructor. When we come back, we're going to learn more about risk mitigation and surviving all over the world. But now, Dan... It's time for a song. So is there a song that you can share with us that reminds you of your early adventures? I lived in Hawaii for eight years, and that was a formative part of my my early 20s. And even before that, I think reggae for me has always been something that's really resonated with me. And so you throw in some Bob Marley, you know, that, that really just gets me gets me in a place, like almost a Zen place, you know, a place where I'm I'm open and like loving things and connected so i think for me reggae is a really connecting music this train he sings a rendition of this train this train is bound for glory won't carry no unholy this train today the trail less traveled leads to the upper sonoran desert My guests and I climbed through some boulders and into a tunnel, and the light is playing so beautifully around us right now. And I'm sitting here with Dan Baird, and he's the head instructor for the California Survival School. He guides all over the world, and we're going to talk a little bit about this. But I'm looking just past Dan here, and I see the nice reflection of what looks to be a a mesquite tree there. It probably is. I can't see it myself, but uh, there's a lot of mesquite in this area. I was just learning about the beans that you can harvest yes. from the mesquite tree, and I want to one day grind those beans up with some corn and make a nice meal with it. The husks, you got to keep the husks. They're sweet. So you can just eat You can eat them right in their stock. Let's just dive right in, yeah. Dan, because I want to talk to you about survival skills. Mm-hmm. You are the head instructor for the California Survival School, so ideally one would go and study with you in person. But for radio today, could you share with us some survival skills? Yeah. 
So planning is, is one of your big skills and learning how to work with people, you know, if you're going to be doing that is a big thing. So just learning to plan for yourself and plan for others. One of the biggest things everybody can do at home right now, and if you're not doing this in the next hour, you listen to this again and, and have it done by then, you need to have an emergency kit put together and that an adventure kit. If you're going outdoors, if you're going anywhere that's out of yelling distance of other human beings, you need to have some basics covered. And that first comes from understanding your priorities. So understand your priorities and then get things together. So for me, priorities are basically like, uh, as far as survival goes for being outdoor in the wilderness, I want to make sure I'm covering the basis of everything that could kill me. And that gets really complicated. People have lots of ways to explain it and think through it. But for me, you can boil it down to really simplistic stuff. And, and for me, the really simplistic things are just to understand what's going to kill me fastest. We know that major first aid situations, you get a, lose an arm, you're bleeding out or have a bad cut or you're choking or drowning. Anything that stops your circulation system is going to kill you within three minutes. So you want to make sure that we're, we're tackling that uh, pretty quick. So a good first aid kit, a great way to cover that base and some first aid training. Next on the list of things that, that kill people, it's not the quickest killer, but it's the biggest killer outdoors. And that's anything to do with thermal regulation. So getting too hot or too cold. That kills roughly 80% of people that are found dead outdoors by search and rescue teams. I do search and rescue in California, and that statistic uh, holds pretty true for most of the states where we have a lot of wild country. So getting too hot or too cold kills a lot of people. Your body uses up a lot of resources, and it really messes with you when when you're having to, to either try to fix your sweating or shivering. It's a real simple base to cover a lot of times. If you're on a car trip, a sleeping bag in the back, packing the right clothes, making sure that you understand how to how to regulate your temperature and not do dumb stuff. That kills a lot of people, and taking care of that's pretty simple. Some fire-making stuff. But when I'm going outdoors, my biggest thing for that is I'm, I'm watching my clothing, and I'm making sure I have the right gear like a sleeping bag. If I have a sleeping bag and something to roll into, it's a lot easier to do that than have to maintain a fire all night a lot of times in real bad conditions. Temperature regulation. The next thing on the list, uh, we, we say you have roughly three minutes to take care of a f- major first aid situation. You have roughly three hours to take care of a big temperature regulation issue. If you're sweating or shivering, you're, after about that much time, your body really starts to shut down if you're not doing anything to regulate it. Uh, generally, if you're in your right presence of mind, you do. If it's cold, you put on a jacket. If it's hot, you uh, stand in the shade. But if you're freaking out and you're panicking, uh, you're not going to take care of that. And panicking really is a circulation system issue. If your heart's going really fast, you're breathing really rapid and shallow, you're not oxygenating your blood, it's not moving to the right places, and you can you can go into shock and, and or pass out, and that's a, it's kind of a first aid thing. So, again, circulation, take care of that first. Next thing that's going to kill you after the temperature regulation stuff and circulation stuff is uh, actually sleep. Most people don't take that into account as a survival factor. You have roughly... 24 hours you can go before you start to micro-sleep. It means falling asleep while you're doing something like driving after that party you went to or on the highway late at night after that camping trip. That kills people all the time. After 30 hours, it's guaranteed you're going to micro-sleep. And after two days, 48 hours, you're going to start hallucinating too. People are like, what does that mean? You have five senses. They give you information. Your brain processes it into your reality. After 48 hours, your brain has a really hard time putting that puzzle together, using all those sensory information in the right way to give you a clear picture of what your reality is. So sleep is a big deal. So after 30 hours without sleep, we say you're pretty compromised, and that's a significant factor in people dying outdoors. 
Next, after that, is water. You have roughly three days you can go without water before your body really shuts down. If you're just kind of hanging out, you have roughly three days you can, you can do without. If you're medically compromised or the temperatures are extreme or you're moving a lot, that can change that. Yes, you can die of dehydration faster than three days. And there are crazy stories of people lasting 8 to 12 days without water. I just wouldn't count on being one of them. But what I can tell you is even if your timeline is going down on the water, if you have less than three days, it doesn't mean it jumps priorities. All those other things that we have to manage, temperature, first aid, really, if your timeline on your water is going down, something's going on with your temperature, you're sweating out and stuff, so you still have to manage that temperature. And really, at the bottom of it all, if you're going to die of dehydration, it really gets to the point where you're having a circulation system issue. There's not enough water to flow through and take care of stuff in your body. Um, So you still have to manage those priorities along with trying to figure out how to get a drink. The last thing that we have to worry about is food. You can go roughly 30 days without eating and still being a fairly normal human being. That seems extreme. Uh, I don't like missing lunch. But it is possible, and I've had a chance to do that personally. I did a show for Nat Geo in 2015 where I walked across the Serengeti in Africa for a month on about 9,000 calories. And that was it. And we were burning roughly five to 7,000 calories a day. So about a day's worth of food for a month, and that was it, and I'm still alive. I can tell you it's really rough. It's not fun the whole time. It's pretty bad, but if you're taking care of your other basics, you can still be functional. I still had to hike 8 to 15 miles a day. I still had to create friction fires using primitive traditional materials. I had to find water. I had to do all kinds of stuff, figure out how to navigate without compass. So, you know, it's it's possible. So those are what we call the rule of threes, at least in my school and other places. But that's how I put them together. Three minutes of that circulation system will put you down. Or three hours without taking care of temperature reg stuff or at least work, starting to work on that can, can really put you in a bad place. 30 hours without sleep, three days without water, and 30 days without food. So think of those as your survival priorities. If you get stuck anywhere in the world, I don't care if it's Antarctica or the middle of the Sahara Desert, those are your priorities. Run your checklist. What do I have to take care of first? First, am I bleeding or breathing? Am I breathing? Cool. I, I don't have any big cuts. Great. Check that off. First aid's good. Temp. I'm a little cold right now. Okay, I put on my jacket. What's next? Sleep. I slept six hours ago. For right now, I'm okay. And then after that, be water. Okay, I have a water bottle. There's some water there in the creek. I'm good. And then last would be food. I got a couple granola bars, or maybe I don't. But you know what? I had breakfast two days ago. I'm cool. You just have to run your priorities, and that lets you know what you have to do. This all circles back to packing a backpack or packing a kit, even if it's just something you're carrying in your pockets. Cover your bases for your situation, your planned situation. If it's a hike behind your house, if it is a, a safari, whatever it is, plan to cover those bases. It doesn't take a lot of money. It doesn't take a lot of time. I can spend 30 minutes and 30 bucks at most at most stores and cover my bases and do it for fairly cheaply. So do that. Take care of first aid stuff first, what's likely first aid stuff, then take care of temperature, then take care of making sure you can sleep, which oftentimes goes in line with temperature if you need it, or rest. Make sure you have your water bases covered and then food. And, yes, there's a bunch of other handy, cool tools and gadgets you can add in. But that's survival in a nutshell, and that's what we teach. And a lot of our training across the world in different environments teaches people basically different ways of doing that, both with modern kit as well as going full-on primitive. We're known for doing primitive expeditions. For instance, one of the things we have coming up in May is a five-day, 50-mile run where we basically just take the clothes on our back and go out into the canyons of Utah in some of the most beautiful Red Rock country we've ever seen. And we run out there for five days, and we kind of just use the land and our smarts to uh, take care of ourselves.
Our website is casurvival.com. So CA, like the abbreviation for California, casurvival.com is our website. Awesome. Survival tips from Dan Baird, the head instructor for the California Survival School in under 10 minutes. So once again, I encourage you to check out more and learn from Dan at casurvival.com. Dan, you just dropped a huge, interesting nugget on our laps here. You just said that you walked across Tanzania for 30 days for National Geographic in 2015. We basically did a day's worth of food, and you made that stretch, and it sounds like you built fire and you found water, and I would love it if you could take us on that journey and tell us the story. For sure. So I was found by Nat Geo through our school and asked to help guide a trip that was billed as a hunter-gatherer experience to follow the great migration path of the wildebeest across Africa. For those who are familiar with the Serengeti, which basically translates into endless plains, it's a big stretch of wilderness where every big five flying king game animal you can think of is running around out there, lions and rhino and hippo and alligators, or actually crocodiles. Everything, zebras, they're all out there. They're all running around. And it's, it's this beautiful stretch of land. And they tend to follow the rains. And so these big, huge plains that stretch across multiple countries, they make this big circle. It's like the circle of life, literally. Uh, you have stuff born. You have stuff trying to eat the stuff that's born. You have the stuff that survives continuing on the cycle. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's epic. And most people in the world, if you, you know, seem to want to go there at least once. And not all of us are lucky enough to be born there. It's a beautiful place. It's an amazing place to go. I love Africa. So I was asked by Nat Geo to come and help guide a group who wanted to do this, this primitive crossing, this traditional crossing using mainly traditional methods and very little gear across this stretch of Serengeti to see if humans could follow the pattern of the wildebeest. This cycle that happens throughout the year when they're trying to cross up to a stretch called the Masai Mara River, these wildebeest, roughly 30% of the wildebeest are lost on that journey. They're eaten by things or they die from other means. They're roughly 30% are lost. And they wanted to see, well, human beings with limited gear, could you guys make that same track, modern humans? Mm. So we were invited to go. And the first thing we do when we go over there is you, you learn from the locals. And frankly, this is anybody that goes anywhere. If you are skipping local advice, you're doing this wrong. And so as a guide, one of the first things I love to do is get somewhere that I'm unfamiliar with and learn from the locals, the real experts. And so we had a chance to spend time with a tribe there called the Hadzabe or Hadza. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Those are my favorite bracelets. I love these things. Yeah. So the, the Hadzabe and Hadza, they're, they're one of the last true hunter-gatherer tribes left on Earth. They're subsistence people that migrate and follow the food. They tend to have camps that they follow through. Their land is really limited. Hunter-gatherer tribes around the world are something really close to my heart. And I, frankly, I think that and maybe we'll talk about this some other time. In the next 10 to 15 years, we're probably going to be losing most of the cultures that still live a traditional hunter-gatherer lifestyle. And there's a lot of reasons for that, a lot of pressures. Um, but it was a dream of mine to be able to spend time with the Hadzabe. We went there. We learned the local skills for how to hunt and gather in those areas from them, how to make traditional friction fire kits, rubbing wood together, how to, you know, recognize the plants that were useful. And, you know, they did their best in a week to show us as much as they could, and it was extremely helpful for getting adapted to that environment. Then we set out on our journey, and due to the vagaries of TV, they like to change how things work and what they think is going to focus on in this particular show for this this journey 
they started throwing curveballs. We we thought we were going to be able to hunt and gather our way across the Serengeti looking, maybe getting small game animals, rodents and stuff like that, or even just picking carcasses that had been eaten by lions and draining out the bone marrow and stuff like that. And we were told a week in, that food the Hadza gave you, the dried meat and the honey and the roots, uh, that's all you got, sorry. Roughly, it was about 9,000 calories per person. We had, we were burning roughly five to 7,000 calories a day, we estimated doing this trek. No trails, just going straight across the Serengeti, really rough territory, finding our water, doing everything, avoiding avoiding wild animals, charged by a hippo, which is one of the most scary experiences of my life. Uh, for those who don't know, hippos kill more people than things like lions every year in Africa. They're, they're a big beast. Picture a VW bus made of meat that can bite you in half, and they can run... 30 miles an hour. That's faster than Usain Bolt, Olympic sprinter. He can run 27 miles an hour. I can't calc this into kilometers right now, but that's really fast. And uh, if they get going at speed, they can really get you. That comes later. At this point, we were told, hey, guys, this is all the food you're going to have for this journey. And because of the national parks, you guys can't touch anything out here, we've decided. So good luck. And so we're stuck in this situation where we're basically told we're going to basically force march and starve across the Serengeti for a month which we did. It was a really crazy experience. I can tell you that one of your best things that you can rely on for survival in any situation is tribe, group, your people, staying calm, taking care of each other, looking out for people's needs. Uh, human human beings, the reason we are so successful in almost any circumstance and why we've grown or been able to do anything is because of it's how we work together. And that's really our secret. That's really the secret sauce. And that's really the best thing you can have in a survival situation is other people to help you. And so, you know, we helped each other. We got things done. You know, someone couldn't make a fire one night because their hands were blistered or just didn't have enough strength. Someone else would pick it up and do it. Or we'd do it together. Most friction fire methods they show on TV, someone doing it by themselves. But frankly, almost every tribe that I've ever met that still does friction fire traditionally is daily practice. They do it together. So the Hadzabe tribe in Africa, Mentawai um, tribe in Indonesia that I've spent time with, the San Bushmen down in Botswana that I've spent time with, same thing. Almost all of them are doing fire together. That's a huge resource. Use your team, have a team, take care of each other. So we made this entire cross. We walked 230 miles, which it was somewhere in the neighborhood of like 380 kilometers or something like that across the across this big stretch of Serengeti for a month. I was emaciated. I lost 35 pounds, uh, roughly 17 kilos. That was quite the experience. I never thought I would starve that way for that long, but it was incredible to see that you know, although I didn't have food while I was covering the rest of my bases, I was still a functional human being, and I was able to do some incredible things. Um, and I got to learn what my body really does. And frankly, that experience of going without, that experience of fasting, I would say it's our human humanity's superpower. If we step back a couple hundred years, that was a really common experience for most people to not have enough for parts of the year. And if we step back even farther, that was just a normal part of life cycle annually. You're going through lean times where you're living off your fat and limited amounts of food. And the ability to transition and go lean like that is a human superpower. And when you're in that state after a couple of weeks, I feel it really changes some gears in the way you think and process and even how you handle fear. I had certain switches that I felt were flipped and even turned off when I had that experience to do that, that I never would have thought possible or I never thought would happen prior to that experience. Um, and so now, even in our school now, that's one of the things we try to do through some of our traditional trips or expeditions is give people a chance to go low calorie or no calorie in a safe environment or a safe group experience. Nothing safe, you know, step, you can step off the 
street and get hit by a car. But we, we move out into wild spaces and give people a chance to experience that sort of low calorie, no calorie environment and see, you know, flip some, some primal switches that we're all born with. We don't oftentimes get to use that machinery is pretty special. And so I, I like giving people that chance. So yeah, it's uh, human beings are incredible. We have incredible systems and uh, we're incredible as a collective. The, the more that we work together, the more incredible we are. Beautiful. That is the voice of Dan Baird. He is the head instructor for the California Survival School, and he guides and shares traditional outdoor skills as an instructor all over the world. Dan, it's now time for another song. Red Hot Chili Peppers, for me in high school and stuff, that was always, you know, they just have this this sound that sticks with me. Under the Bridge is a song that, that sticks with me. I think we all kind of feel alone at some points. We feel maybe we don't fit in. There's always someone who's willing to take us in and spend time with us if we're willing to look. And I think the hardest thing sometimes is just to open up and talk to people. But again, that's our superpower. If you're having problems, talk to your tribe, figure it out, get new tribe. So that's that's a song that sticks with me. Hello there, Mandela here, your host of The Trail Less Traveled. And I want to take a very short break to thank our sponsor, New West Knifeworks. When you love the tools you use, Everyday chores become a joy. A finely crafted knife is an extension of the hand that welds it. That's the motivating idea behind New West Knifeworks founder, Corey Milligan. Milligan moved to Jackson Hole to pursue the good life in his early 20s. To earn a living while enjoying the outdoors, he worked as a line cook in local restaurants. His interest in cutlery came from the desire to make a knife that would better express his love of cooking. New West Knife Works was born out of that passion, a passion which continues to keep the company on the cutting edge. All of New West Knife Works culinary, hunting, and recreational knives are made in the Tetons with the finest American steel and tested by the professional chefs, guides, anglers, and hunters of Jackson Hole. From the New York Times and Wall Street Journal to Bon Appetit and Forbes, top tastemakers appreciate cutlery that is as beautiful as it is useful. Visit newwestknifeworks.com. I'm sitting here under a pile of boulders in the Sonoran Desert with Dan Baird. He's the head instructor for the California Survival School. I was wondering if you might be willing to paint the picture for the listener as to what you're looking at right now when you look around. So we're in what I would consider a mythical rock garden we're in this stretch of sonora desert for me it's really special it's one of the most beautiful places on earth these big saguaro cactuses and barrel cactuses saguaro cactus they're these the big things you've seen in movies or or cartoons a big straight cactus with an arm sticking out they have the most amazing fruit it's my favorite wild edible these cactus fruit grow at the top Uh, they're not like the prickly pear they're different you can take them off the cactus, and when they dry out, the best way to describe it is like a fruit snack, you know, those kids' fruit snacks that are like gummy, mixed with a bunch of chia seeds, 50-50 even parts. And when you chew it, you get that kind of crunchy chia seed taste, and you're also just a sweet gummy taste, and it's my favorite wild food ever. If you go to Mexico, I love Mexico. I love guiding down there. We run trips to a place called Copper Canyon, Barrancas de Cobre. And down there in Mexico, you can get ice cream with cactus fruit. I've had like eight different varieties down there. They they love it. It's fun. It's great. So we're in this rock garden, 
And right now we're kind of tucked in this stretch. It's like a open-ended cave on both ends. And for me, it's like this is beautiful stretch of place to be if it was raining we had this nice natural cover that's probably been used for thousands and thousands of years with people going through here people have lived in this stretch forever it's kind of that time of year where we had really nice rain clouds this morning even a little bit of rain last night and this is i'm feeling comfortable and nice in this spot it feels safe to me in this gorgeous desert landscape i would love to talk to you about the khoisan the sun people in the kalahari the Kalahari, for those listening who don't know yet, maybe get a map out and, and start just being enthralled by the continent of Africa. I love staring at maps. And um, and look at the eastern side of Namibia, the western side of Botswana. And our guest today, Dan, he spent a lot of time there with the Khoisan, the Bushmen, and also guiding there. So, Dan, I'd love to hear about the San people. And I'd also like to finish the show learning a little bit more about the importance of the knowledge that can be cultivated still by the hunter-gatherer tribes around the world and that harsh reality that we might be losing them within the next 10, 15 years. So I can't speak for all San peoples. I'm definitely not the expert there. I prefer they speak for themselves on this instance, but at least the Nara Bushmen that I spend time with in Botswana, they actually dislike the word San, which is really interesting because the politically correct form that's used in universities and stuff now is to not call them Bushmen. We want to call them San, Khoisan. But speaking to the, the Nara Bushmen in this specific stretch of Botswana, they're like, we don't like San. It actually means without in our language. And there's a number of different dialects within Khoisan or San peoples in that area, but it means without. And so they don't like it. They're like, we, we want to be called Bushmen. And they're genetically distinct people uh, in that area that, that have one of the oldest cultures in known human history or prehistory, roughly 100,000 years by some accounts of unbroken history. They've been able to live in those areas and throughout those different stretches of Africa forever. And I really love spending time with them. I had a chance to go out. 2019, I had a chance to go film a movie out there, go back and visit some of my friends there. There's a tribal elder named Kuta, and he is just an amazing guy. Short guy, but his presence is amazing, and his love for life. And it, for me, that stretch of desert's magical. Uh, it's supposed to be one of the driest places on earth. It's, it's just magical. It's still full of life. I, again, I'm, I'm kind of a desert rat. I find deserts magical. And the more time you spend in deserts, the more that you see that they're places of life. They're not places of death. Frankly, I find it harder to survive somewhere super green and cold, like the boreal forest in Canada for me is like being stuck there year round would kind of be awful. But people adapt and again, crazy ways to adapt and find beauty and utility in all kinds of places. But for me, deserts are amazing. And so going out there with the sand and, and my guides there, both the male and female guides, they're the ones that are the real experts. But going out with them and learning the land and learning how they do things and everything from my first time there, I got dropped off without a translator, I was there for a scout, and everybody else was staying back at the lodge. I was like, no, I want to go hang out with the, you know, I want to go hang out with the sun, I want to hang out with the Bushmen. You know, I don't, I'm, I've had enough hotels in my life, you know. So I got dropped off, and there's no translators. They speak, some of them speak Afrikaans, which I don't speak and uh, no one speaks English in that group. I just pull up at a fire, and they're like, oh, okay, another strange dude, you know. I, I'm still kind of an oddity because not that many come out there still. They're really out there on this stretch. And I'm out there and uh, just by the fire and, you know, just hanging out. And the best thing you can do if you go to other cultures is observe. You know, you know, it's uh, communicate, reciprocate, whatever the host wants, but just to be there. I, I didn't talk that night, really. I, I smiled and, and sat there and 
and stuff and they were just content to do their own thing they were just hanging out with me at the fire chatting and talking and and doing their their stuff and i just kind of observed and that's a really powerful skill is to just observe and it kind of soak things in and for the next couple of days actually i just kind of followed them around they they inclusive of me but they actually didn't uh i had to bring my own water and stuff because at that time there was no water and uh a well had been put in uh, by well-meaning group had put in a well but the well had broken and so there was no water and so they were really being scarce with their water and stuff and they could they was to the point where they couldn't offer me water and i'd been warned ahead of time so i'd brought my own and even more to share everything else you know they were just super willing to share their knowledge with me we went on plant walks and we were pulling these big sap balls off trees which to me seems similar to some of the mesquite out here but they form these big sap balls on the ends and we just walked through and we'd eat them pulling them off we were digging up roots we were doing all kinds of stuff and over time i got to feel a vision i've i've come to feel more familiar with that specific stretch of, of area to where I can recognize most of the things that will kill me. We had an instance where a puff adder was stuck in one of the huts right up against the wall right near where I was, and I didn't see it. One of the elders was kind enough to pull it out before it bit me. <laughs> that would have been death. Uh, those those snakes are super poisonous. Uh, frankly, I had another friend on, on, on that geo show sit, sit down next to one as well, and it just chilled, didn't do anything. Uh, but they're some of the fastest striking snakes in the world, and if they bite you, unless you have a big cocktail of a bunch of frozen antidotes that have to be prepped a certain way, sitting out there in the middle of the bush, you're dead. They're snakes you have to respect. They're this place you have to respect. You know, one of my most magical memories being out there with with uh, the Triwilder Kuta, we went running. We were running out in the bush. They're they're persistence hunters. They go out and they chase down game. And in this particular instance, we weren't persistent honey but we were out looking for some some different materials to make uh some traditional rope and things out of for this movie that they were going to be featured in and the thing i love about this movie too is there was no direction as far as trying to tell them what to do a lot of times we come into cultures and try to tell them how to run or operate or do things and in this movie in this instance it was kind of like okay well this is kind of what we had an idea for a story how can you guys like step in and share your culture with us and and they got to make their own decisions which i thought was really cool that movie coming out next year, it's going to be called Nomad, which I think is going to be really worth watching. Just running out there barefoot with Kuta in the, across the, you know, that big stretch of Kalahari was for me magical. Barefoot. I like running. I like being barefoot. At one point, he stops me because there were some rhino that had been brought into that range. They were not, weren't traditionally there, but they were brought in to caretake them from poachers. Uh, they'd had their horns cut off and stuff. The big male, they're, they're kind of like Tyrannosaurus Rex. They don't see very well. They noticed motion, and uh, we got really, really close, just running past, and he stops me because he's so aware, and he could see through these bushes, and he could see the the rhino hanging out about 20 meters from us, and just was like, okay, we're going to stop, and we're going to go this way, and so we backed off and went another direction. Uh, you know, for me, it was like, man, this guy, this guy is just aware. This, they, there's, you know, so much to learn that I can't, I can't pick up, but I'm just appreciated for all the little tidbits. Kind of switching gears, traditional culture, whether it's the Hadzabe I've talked about, or the the Bushmen, or you know other tribes around the world in South America, or other places that we have a chance to go. The big things that are threatening them, it's a bunch of factors. Um, some places the governments aren't very friendly towards supporting their traditional lifestyle on their traditional lands, so having traditional land rights is a real struggle being able to have access to their traditional way of being. A lot of those cultures in those developing countries are also pretty uh, agricultural-centric or cattle-centric, and so these people are displaced by those interests, and they're seen as non-contributors, so the local economy and the local other people consider them a lot of times to not be someone who contributes to society. 
And so that also is a negative factor or a negative effect. There are pressures from other interests, business interests who want their land for different things or want them to transition out. In certain places in South America, there are certain oil interests and other groups have done things that I think are despicable. For instance, going into uncontacted tribes by helicopter and dropping bags of candy and tools to kind of accustom these tribes to contact and getting resources, and they'll come in and take their land and, and eventually try to kick them out or convert them or get them to go other places. And so I, I find that practices like that are really destroying cultures. And, and the thing is, a lot of these cultures that maintain these traditional lifestyles, it's uh, sometimes people look at them as backwards or unhealthy, or why would you want to live in the Stone Age? Guys, they work three hours a day in these, some of these traditional cultures, and they maintain an extremely healthy lifestyle. The Hadzabe that I'm familiar with, their diet, they eat over 600 varieties of plant, and their diet is roughly 80% plant-based and around 20% meat of, of other things they hunt. And, and that's right now when they're limited to roughly 10% of their traditional land use area of the last 100 years even. And they're basically the Badlands, and they're still these guys. These guys don't have colon cancer. They don't have a lot of the health issues that plague modern peoples. And they can eat a super good, healthy diet and hang out <laughs> like they're just on vacation all the time, almost uh, when they're being left alone. And now that different groups, well-meaning groups, are trying to bring in clothes or bring in candy, you start seeing cavities show up in teeth. You start seeing things that, that uh, basically their their quality of life is reduced, and they get try to get pushed into villages. And frankly, cultures that that aren't set up that way, that aren't educated or set up in ways that are you know ready to transition modern culture. A lot of times, they end up in fringe slum type areas of places where they're not really well adapted, and their life is definitely worse than if they'd just been left alone. At the same time, culture shouldn't be told they have to stay Stone Age if they don't want to be Stone Age. Cultures, you know, the problem is that we're trying to, these cultures are being forced to change by circumstance. Private technology or just regular technology is really invasive too, for good or for bad. Almost any tribe I've been to in the past 10 years at this point, if you wait around long enough, a cell phone pops out. That's not necessarily a bad thing. No one should be told they have to stay the same. But people should be allowed to transition on their rate. And the problem is with a lot of these cultures is that the younger generation are being told on every path and by every outlet that their lifestyle is bad, it's old, it's out of date, it's unhealthy, or it's just it's wrong. And so they're being pushed away from, from being able to carry on these traditions. And what's happening is these cultures aren't being allowed to either maintain their lifestyle or transition at their own pace. If a culture is going to change, the culture should have the right to self-determination to change at their own pace. If they want cell phones, that's their choice. If they want to drive cars, that's their choice. If they want to move into houses, that's their choice. If they want to go get educated and go to college and do whatever, that's their choice. They should not be forced to change by circumstance or anything else. They hold something precious. All these cultures have basically A-B tested their entire environment for thousands of years and understand the plants and the cycles and how to live in that place not only have it be useful to them, but not hurt it. And in a lot of ways, cultivate and, and make it uh, better. There's a story I love, the book that I haven't been able to read yet, actually, about the aboriginals down in Australia. It was noted by Europeans moving in. It was basically like a garden. And the aboriginals had basically been caretaking and wild tending these places for for thousands and thousands and thousands of years to make it like that, where it was not only uh, both healthy and useful, uh, you know, it was both healthy for the people, but also healthy for the environment and useful. And so, like, these cultures hold priceless understanding that as soon as they're lost, 
the understanding of how that environment works and the understanding of how to live with it well and the understanding of things like medicines and all these other things that can be potentially useful in modern culture are lost. And frankly, human beings have spent more time living as hunter-gatherers than any other style of culture or lifestyle. That was most of our history and prehistory as hunter-gatherer. And so as soon as we lose these people and their traditional lifestyle, we've lost a link to our original form of life and it will never be recaptured or remade in the same way that information's gone because a lot of these cultures don't have ways to record or document or pass it on. It's being lost at an incredible rate and it makes me sad. There are efforts to empower or to allow these cultures to be more empowered in their own self-determination, which I appreciate and applaud those efforts of people that look to support. And there are ways to do that. The first is just to be self-conscious and conscious of what's going on and what we're losing and to make smart tourist decisions. Uh, Some of these cultures are adapting to allow tourism which is good if it supports them, but sometimes the money is being lost. I know tribes in South America, there's some tribes I've been to in Brazil where basically tour groups come in, they're paying, the tour guides are paid to come in. They don't pay the traditional culture. The culture basically benefits from potentially being able to sell some things on the side, which, uh, you know, if they're able to sell things, great. But just understand that your tour dollars don't always go to support these people. And frankly, monetary benefits aren't always the best way to interact with these cultures. It's their choice to determine what's the best way to interact with them. They may not want exchange of money or goods. That may not be what's healthy for their culture. It's their choice. So supporting them, finding ethical tourism, and I'm happy to provide whatever information to people who want to reach out to me on what I feel are ethical ways to interact with certain groups I'm familiar with. But there are a lot of good resources out there uh, for finding ethical tourism or ways to interact with these cultures. And honestly, sometimes the answer is we don't interact with them. They should be left alone. If they don't want to be interact or if they want to be uncontacted, we need to leave them that way. And as long as possible, because they're gems and they're important and they should be left to to self-determine. We are sitting underneath a pile of boulders in the Sonoran Desert with Dan Baird. He is the head instructor for the California Survival School, and he is a guide and a teacher of traditional outdoor skills all over the world. We've been talking to him about the Bushmen and the Kalahari, as well as the Hatsapi over in Tanzania. Dan, I just want to say thank you so much for your time and energy joining me on the trail less traveled. No worries. Let's end your show with three bits of advice. One, learning to kind of get outside your comfort zone and learn what your own limits are and allow your kids to kind of push risk boundaries and create their own own limits of of, uh, understanding risk is really important. Understanding how to be prepared ahead of time. Understand what your priorities are for a situation and and understand how to prepare ahead of time. It's so much easier to tackle wilderness survival if you've got a backpack full of stuff that can meet all your needs in an emergency in a minute than having to mad scrabble around and make shelters and do things the hard way. I love teaching both, but I'd much rather if you have a broken arm and are dying to be able to take care of stuff right away and not have to do it the hard way. And that uh, people are our greatest resource for both for survival as well as just for everything in our life that we want to do. You know, build strong community, share with community, always be a student and sometimes a teacher. Everybody has things to share. We all have things to learn from each other and take care of each other, take care of Mother Earth, and do good.
Namaste, Missoula, and my friends around the world. Thank you for listening to The Trail Less Traveled. The show premieres every Sunday evening at 6 Mountain Time. You can stream the show live online at trail1033.com. And if you missed the premiere, be sure to check out the podcast, which is available on all platforms. That's it for this week's adventure, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, get outside, do something for Mother Earth, and shred the gnar. The thing about the gnar is it does not shred itself. This episode of The Trail Less Traveled is sponsored by the Missoula-based and locally grown Mountain Meadow CBD. Their hemp is grown organically and all of their products are organic as well. Mountain Meadow utilizes a living soil technique that helps ensure the symbiotic relationship between the plants, the soil, and the insects. CBD has many therapeutic benefits, including, but not limited to, anxiety, joint pain, gut health, deeper sleep, depression, and as an immune system booster. Mountain Meadow CBD is a family-owned farm with very reasonable prices due to the fact that there are no middlemen between you and your product. They offer CBD tinctures in different strengths, pain solve, lip balm, vapes, and pre-rolls. You can find out more by visiting mountainmeadowcbd.com or on Instagram at mountainmeadowcbd.com.